Well, welcome, everyone. Joy to be with you. Again, uh, I'm Silas, pastor here, and excited to be leading our time as we engage the Word together, as we continue in worship. Um, And we just had our kids lead us in praying the Lord's Prayer. But before we go into our sermon, we're going to start by... um, by also engaging the same prayer in the same way. And so, if you would, it'll be on the screen here in just a second. Uh, Let us also begin our time as we engage the Word of God by uh, praying the words of this prayer and this scripture together. Join me in prayer, friends. Our Father, who is in heaven, holy is your name. Your kingdom come, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us of our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Keep us from evil. Amen. Amen and amen. So all through our series, we've been using different translations to engage this prayer. Um, The one that the kids have been learning has been this one specifically. But... In the course of our time, and in the course of our learning, you know, we've been in the series, Teach Us to Pray. Uh, Today, we're going to finish our series by focusing on this last verse, verse 13, which in other translations would go, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, or deliver us from the evil one, which raises like a question for us. What do we mean when we mean temptation? What does it mean to be tempted? I want you to take a look at these four celebrities on the screen. We have uh, Jack Nicholson, Adam Sandler, Juliet Canton, Dave Grohl. What do they share in common other than being celebrities, other than having a craft of some sort? Think about that. Hold that in your brain. If you're struggling for an answer, maybe this additional cast member will help. Let's look at this one. This goat has also played this role. Here's what they all share in common, friends. At some point in their careers, they have acted out the part of Satan on film. At some point in their careers. So we have the adversary, the evil one, the one who tempts, evil personified. And in different ways, these actors, these uh, characters have played different types of expression, what it means. And so on the one hand, we have uh, uh, Dave Grohl on the side and Tenacious D in The Pick of Destiny, right? He's, um, He's embodying the devil, And then we have Adam Sandler as well. And just because I know you're all thinking it, here's the goat again. This is what he plays as, the goat. He just looks like that. Doesn't need to dress up, but this is from a 2015 horror film called The Witch. Different ways that temptation, evil, the evil one, has been personified in film. You know, when it comes to depicting the devil or temptation in film, artists and creators, they have kind of a puzzle on their hands that they have to figure out. Because many times in film, visual depictions of evil, depictions of Satan, they tend to be pretty overt. 
So if we looked at that slide again of the four characters, the four ways it's happened, you'll notice, like, this one on the far right, this one here, pretty stereotypical for what evil would be imagined as, what it would be portrayed as. If you're in medieval art and you're looking uh, through images, there's normally a character that looks like one of them. Pretty overt in the way that it manifests, pretty, uh, pretty clear. Like, this is not a good person to be around. Like, if I'm in the grocery store and I see this personification, I'm probably running, not staying to find out. And so depictions of Satan, they tend to be pretty overt and pretty unmistakable in the way that this happens. Creatively, this is one way of presenting evil, overt, obvious ways. If you've seen The Passion of the Christ, right, whenever uh, the evil one comes and shows up in the film, there's normally like sunken in eyes, Maybe there's like an insect or a snake crawling through their face. It looks pretty overt. It's like, that's not a good person. Pretty clear. Because when evil is depicted in this way, here's the thing that happens. We can name that outside of ourselves. It's otherworldly. And in the same way, when we see evil personified and described in that way, the deterrence is clear. Like, I'm probably not going to go near that. I'm probably going to stay away. When presented in this way, evil is othered, and it's out there. It's something outside of human experience that is acting upon our human experience. When presented in this way, evil, it doesn't seem appealing. It's scary. It's terrifying. But in those things, uh, that's how it kinds of works on us. It overpowers us, it overshadows us, and breaks our, our humanity. That's how evil is presented sometimes in film. But other ways, like as we saw in those ones, we had Jack Nicholson. He's in a different movie there. And for him, like he, through the movie, kind of becomes crazy. He's clearly human, but his humanity in the way that it's being described, in the way that he's acting, it starts to verge on ways of being destructive for self, destructive for others. And that's where sometimes the brokenness of the world starts to display through art, through ways that are destructive, through ways that are destructive of self and of other. So the thing is, like, in very real ways, temptation and evil, they manifests like that. Addiction, patterns in our lives that shape behavior, that set us on destructive trajectories for us and for the world around us. This is another way that evil is depicted in film, in art. And we see this in scripture. We can see the effects of this in real life. When temptation leads to self-destruction, and destruction through self, evil shows up in ways that start to dehumanize us. But it's a little harder to see. It's not as overt as the first two. It's a little more difficult to find. It's hidden. The last way that those four actors, actresses, 
present or have been cast to embody evil is this last one, Juliet Canton. And there's other ways the artists tend to portray, again, Satan as an observation, but more often than not, like the way that we're about to talk about doesn't make it to screen because it's harder to recognize, it's harder to reproduce. But for her, she's in a film by Martin Scorsese that she doesn't manifest destruction. There's no snakes coming out of her face. It's not clear that she's evil through the movie. She's not tormented or uh, presented as wrestling with humanity and evil. Instead, she's presented as reasonable, as earnest, being authentic, being innocent. She embodies kind of a genuine spirit through the film. And here's where she differs from the other depictions of evil that we see portrayed in art. She doesn't tempt through destruction and disorder. She doesn't break things to show that she's evil. She instead tempts through the preservation of order in a way that is dehumanizing. She tempts through the preservation of a kind of order, a kind of engaging the world that ends up being dehumanizing. So she tempts Jesus with a good thing, life, flourishing, a way of existing, a particular ethic of life aimed to keep him from a mission. In the movie, she serves as a guardian angel for Jesus. And in that movie, she's saying, you've done enough, Jesus. There's nothing more. You've healed people. You've fed people. That's it. Take a break. What she's doing is she's, in the movie, taking something that is meant for good and just twisting it enough so that the mission of God doesn't get played out. And guess what? When it comes to temptation in our lives, right outcomes held and pursued in the wrong ways is how most of us will actually encounter evil in our day-to-day lives. Not as much through destruction and disorder. That happens. But more often than not, we engage and are engaged by temptation with order or right ends Pursued and held in wrong ways. Friends, this is kind of how Satan works. In the corrupting of God-giving things, held in destructive and isolating ways. And this is what the Lord's Prayer pushes back on against. We'll look at this more through our sermon today. But in our last sermon of our series, we're going to close out this series we've been over the last six, seven weeks on the Lord's Prayer. Let's explore and see how this last bit wraps in the whole sermon and the whole prayer together. If you would, join me in prayer as we pray over this time. Let's receive from God as we search the word. God, we open ourselves to you. We pray that this spoken word would be faithful to your written word that it would lead us to the living word, Jesus Christ our Lord. And as it does that, as it works on us, and as it 
uh, as we read it, we pray that you would read us. You would read our lives and show us how we can love and reflect and uh, show you more. Not just for our sake, but for the sake of all creation. We pray this with Christ by the power of the Spirit. Everyone said amen and amen. This will be review for some of us, but it's worth reviewing, worth revisiting. This prayer, the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6, 9 through 13, this prayer is designed with a structure called a chiastic structure. Chiastic structure. That means that the guiding thread through this prayer or through this passage is found in the middle of the prayer. It's not just the end, but it's held in the middle. When we watch movies, typically the payoff for us is at the end. In a structure like this, the peak is in the middle, and you read everything else through that middle lens. So notice, the prayer, it starts with prayer about God, and then it peaks at the very center, the mission of the prayer, on earth as it is in heaven. So your name, right? Your kingdom, your will be done. But we read that through the middle of the prayer. To participate in bringing heaven and earth together. That's the mission of this prayer. And then the prayer finishes with prayer to God about us. Prayer about us. Which is how this whole prayer comes together. In the structure of this prayer, Jesus guides us to pray about three barriers that keep us from being able to participate in bringing earth and heaven together. Three things that keep us from doing that well. So the first thing is, what keeps us from participating in the mission of Christ to bring heaven and earth together? Being tempted to name God in a way that isn't true to who God is. That's that first verse. God, you are holy. Hallowed be your name. If we don't do that, the temptation we have is to name God in a way that isn't true to who God is. This last verse. And so, we pray for deliverance from temptation. We pray for deliverance from evil. What keeps us from participating in the mission of God to bring heaven and earth together? Trying to be people of God's kingdom while also having relational brokenness in our lives. We can't do that mission well if our relationship isn't well. And so... We pray for forgiveness. And we also pray to God for forgiveness as we also have forgiven others in uh, transgression and debt. The last one, what keeps us from participating in this mission one more time? Imagining that we're totally self-made. We're self-reliant. That our possessions are only for our lives. They're in our lives to serve ourselves. And so this prayer says to combat that, Pray for our daily bread. Not not my daily bread, our daily bread. And not bread in a scarcity sense, but bread with an abundance to say, there will be there tomorrow. Share with other. To live that kingdom, share the bread. As we round out our series, what does being tempted to name God in a way that isn't true to God God's name look like. We're focusing on that last temptation and that prayer of deliverance. 
How can we live the mission of God well when there's so many claims for who God is? Claims for the way that people around us, our culture, ourselves, we name God. Here's the crux, right? Like, we're celebrating Palm Sunday today. And the feast isn't called Palm Sunday in that time. But in Christian world, we we call this Palm Sunday over and over and over again. It's good. Let's take a look at that passage, John 12, 12 through 19. The passage reads, The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival, this was a festival of coming together, heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, as it is written, Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had performed the sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. Here's the tension when we talk about this text, and we talk about this moment, this celebration every year in our uh, Christian calendar, kicking off of Holy Week, Palm Sunday. We call this Palm Sunday. The text speaks of people waving palms, The imagery behind this is really important for us to grasp the nature of what's being said. This is a big deal. Waving palms is not a passive move at this time. So imagine the world, right? You're being oppressed by uh, Roman imperial power. There's overt uh, discrimination. You know, you're being taxed on multiple ends. The world itself is in a tough place. And when they're waving palms, here's what they're actually saying. The waving of a palm is an overt cry of rebellion against oppression. An overt cry of rebellion against oppression. Here's why. Take a look at these coins real quick. These coins are from that time. They're around uh, 116 AD or CE. And in these palms uh, or on these coins, what's being described are palm fronds that are specific to highlighting the Maccabean revolt. So through Israel's history, there's this time where they are being oppressed. And what they end up doing is they have a leader come up, Maccabee, and they have a a group, a sect, that essentially starts guerrilla warfare, raging against the machine, and they start taking back things for Israel, trying to return Israel to its state. And as that happens, their symbol becomes the palm, 
They start waving the palm as a way of heralding this new coming rebel king. This new way of taking back what's ours. New way of rediscovering our identity. So the palm itself is a sign of protest. It's meant to hail a conquering king. And when we say Hosanna, Hosanna, the word, literally means save or save us now. It's more just that exclamation of save. But we interpret it as towards an end. Save us, save me, save us now. And when people are waving these palms, they're saying, Jesus, our champion, our savior, save us from oppressive rule and bring a new kingdom to bear in the world. When the crowds pick up the palms and they're welcoming Jesus in, they're welcoming him in as a kind of coming, conquering king. A new kingdom. Bring that to bear, Jesus. You are the Messiah. Free us from our oppression. This is the symbol the crowd takes up. They take up the palms. And I wonder, in this act, what they're doing They're naming Jesus. They're naming a vision of Jesus' ministry. They're saying, when we pick these up, if I'm hailing you as a coming conquering king, that's who you are. That's how I see you. Do for me what you are meant to do as the Messiah. I wonder, as you think about your life, What kind of symbols do you pick up? What kind of symbols do we pick up when we approach Jesus? Another way of asking this is, what kind of Christ do we expect Christ to be in our own lives? What kind of Christ do we expect Christ to be in our own lives? It doesn't take much to see how this thread, naming Christ in ways that we expect God to act, is prevalent on virtually any topic under the sun. Think about politics, naming Christ in ways we expect God to act. More pointedly, on any debate, we could talk about schools and violence in schools. This past Thursday, uh, Pope Francis he renounced the doctrine of discovery, which had been a discovery for the Catholic Church, or a doctrine throughout history that led to the taking of land, like the colonizing of spaces. The Pope, on Thursday, said, this was a mistake for us to do. But for centuries, for a long time in the the history of the Catholic expression, this was a doctrine that allowed them in their naming of who God is and how God acts, to act in oppressive ways, not towards the flourishing of all. That news maybe got buried under some of our more American-centric news cycles, but this is big news in the Catholic tradition, Catholic world. There's a history within Christianity to name Jesus as championing fill-in-the-blank. In a variety of ways. Surveyed the news. Virtually any topic in public discourse. 
God is being invoked to give power to a perspective or persuasion. And the question we want to come back to is, for us in our own lives, if you claim Christianity is your faith tradition, what kind of Christ do you expect Christ to be in your life? What are you naming Christ as? It's striking that in this story, Jesus doesn't pick up a palm. We call it Palm Sunday, but the symbol he chooses in the story is in a palm. What's Jesus' symbol in the story? It's a donkey. He comes on a donkey. Esau Macaulay has pointed this out. He's a theologian, author, biblical scholar. He notes the ways that this little shift in how we receive the story changes everything. Jesus doesn't pick up a palm. His chosen symbol in this act is a donkey. And as he's doing that, as he chooses the donkey, you know, the text, it gives us some elaboration. It says, this is to fulfill, and then it gives an interpretation of a scripture. The scripture that it's fulfilling is Zechariah 9.9. I'm going to read it for us here. The text says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Look, your king comes to you. He is righteous and victorious, humble and riding on a donkey. Again, we call this Palm Sunday. I've celebrated this as Palm Sunday my whole life. I will continue to celebrate it as Palm Sunday. I'm not going to call it Donkey Sunday. But recognizing the impact of what's happening in the story changes everything. Because the crowd, a variety of persuasions, they choose palms, which when they choose palms, they choose victory against our oppressor. Which, please hear me, it's not that pushing back against oppression is wrong, but they choose victory against their their oppressor, using power against power to overpower. They use the system, the the tools of the, the world to try and get the end they're looking for. So victory means triumph for them. Triumph over my enemy. But Jesus chooses a donkey. Humble and righteous in victory. Victory through this donkey is victory towards the redemption of all. Victory through releasing power to disempower power. That's the story of the cross. To leave power, to disempower the power. Victory as humility, not victory as triumph. This changes everything. Because as Jesus lives the humble life. We do want to make that distinction that humility here, humility for Jesus, humility for us, isn't 
diminishing ourselves, making ourselves small, thinking less of ourselves. It's thinking of ourselves less. It's the direction in which my life goes. So to be humble doesn't mean that I squash myself and lose my distinctiveness, my strengths, everything. It's how can those things that God has given be trajectoried, oriented, projected in ways that go outside of myself, that bring me to my neighbor for the sake of the world. That's what humility is lived in as Jesus. He doesn't take up the palm. We do. So what do we do with this? We want to be people who embody the life of Christ. We want to be people who take up the symbols of Christ. We want to be people who live the ethic of Christ. That's what our lives are centered around. So it challenges us, this story, in very real ways. It challenges us to imagine, what do do we do when the names that we've been giving to God, in reflection, in our meditation, in community, they don't start to actually point people to Christ. I said they do the opposite. This is the challenge of Palm Sunday. This is the challenge of the Lord's Prayer. Because it starts with, this is who you are, God. Your name be holy. Your name be made sacred. Hallowed be your name. And the temptation that it's trying to resist us against, that's trying to warn us about, is the temptation to name God in a way that's false. For my good. Name God in a way that keeps me from being able to bring heaven and earth together in our lived reality. So the prayer that Jesus instructs us to pray is, lead me not into temptation and deliver us from evil. Resist temptation and be delivered from evil. I think one of the things that stand out as we look at this prayer is that when we are living the Christian faith well, when we're taking on what this prayer is meant to shape in us, it turns us into people who then live out the next section after the Lord's Prayer. You know, the, when I, we first started this series, I was talking with Austin, and I was like, what stands out to you about this prayer? And he, just so quick to note, like, this prayer is situated in a whole list of other things about, like, the flourishing of life, the, the, the flourishing of life just not for myself, but for others and for my neighbor and for my community. If the prayer that we pray doesn't form us towards that end, we're starting to take these powerful words and we're reading it with the wrong imagery. We're taking up the symbol of the palm, not the symbol that Christ takes up. Right after the Lord's Prayer, there's an extended section that continues about forgiveness again. We're like, you, we just prayed for forgiveness. You told us to pray for forgiveness. But then he teaches on forgiveness right after. The scope of this prayer tries to form us to live this ethic of Christ well. 
that we can hold relationship, we can hold how God calls us into life. And we can do that in a way that mends relational breaks that happen in our lives personally and publicly. If there is a place where Christ is aiming to save us now, I'm convinced that in this season especially, but throughout history, it's how we relate to our neighbor. It's how we hold relationship with our neighbor. The kingdom of God, how we expand that and how we live that in a way that doesn't overpower others. Remember, God's kingdom isn't a kingdom that's based on power over, but it's based on the people that are present within. It's not powering over, but it's relational connection. Connecting to God and connecting to other, connecting to God through how we connect with other, this is the way that God invites us into divine life. And so as we think about the way that we have prayed this prayer, what does heaven and earth coming together in your life look like? What does it mean to live this prayer? Not to just say the prayer or pray the prayer, but to live this prayer. What does heaven and earth coming together look like? Over the last few weeks, we've looked at the three barriers, three ways that we keep from being able to live this prayer well. As we come to the table of communion today, I'm going to ask that before you come up, you meditate on that question. How have you named God in ways that are false to who God is? The challenge of that question is, we have to be radically honest with ourselves. We have to be open with ourselves. And to that we say, come Lord Jesus, make us whole. Because when God calls us, his call isn't retributive. He doesn't violate us. It doesn't, uh, it's not an act of aggression against us. When, when Jesus calls out things in our life, He calls us up. He calls us up into the life that we are designed to carry and make. A life that gives life, that doesn't take it from others. Christ calls us up into Christ's life. So I want to invite my uh, communion servers up. We'll reflect on that question. Let's actually, let's reflect on that question now. Take about 30 seconds and pause. Lord, we open ourselves to you. Pray you would reveal our blind spots. Ways that we have taken your name and lived it in ways that aren't true to who you are ways that we have taken up visions for who you should be. And we've waved it and heralded you as our king. And yet you say, I want to 
reimagine that life. My power isn't power over. I release it to disempower the way that that works in our lives. Make us humble. May the trajectory of our lives look outside ourselves. And as you provide for us, as we uh, live that life well, we pray you would show us ways that we can participate in your kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. 